excited to uh, be able to continue our study through the book of Matthew. And today we are entering another section, thank you, Roy, of the book of Matthew. Chapter number 10 is where we are going to be today. So chapters um, 8 through 9 give us uh, kind of a set of miracles that Jesus does, a little bit of interlude there. And so we concluded that last week as we looked at the laborers and the harvest, a very well-known illustration of Jesus. And then today we're going to pick up with another passage um, that has some familiarity. So you're going to see some things that you might be familiar with, and I hope um, observe some things maybe that are a little bit uh, different or something that you may not have been as familiar with before coming into it. And so last week we looked at uh, Jesus, and he gives one of his few prayer requests. Um, Often we see Jesus praying, but only a few times we see Jesus say, pray for this thing. And one of those times we saw last week, as Jesus said to those who were following after him, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest. Um, Any of you, um, you guys ever know someone that likes to um, find all the problems and doesn't want to ever like help with like the solutions? You guys ever know anybody like that? Um, Don't look at your spouse. Keep your eyes right up here, please. Guys. I do marital counseling, um, if you guys need it. But um, my, um, one, of, uh, one of my kids, um, it's, he's three and he's a boy, and so it's one of two of them. Um, he, uh, everybody, we've all been, we're, it's all winter, right? We're all in the same season. And so we have runny noses, everybody's got runny noses, this or that going on, right? And so um, at three years old, he is very sensitive to when anything is coming out of his nose. And um, so he, he always goes, one of the two of them, always go, I need a tissue. And um, I'm a very compassionate dad, so you know what I say to that? Go get a tissue. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with you? Go get a tissue, right? And so even this morning, he did that very thing. Um, he, he did that very thing here this morning. And uh, we have some tissues up front, and I was like, buddy. And he looked around, and oh, and so he went to get the tissue, and then brought it to dad to help him blow his nose, right? Because there's something magical about when dad holds the tissue. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, but oftentimes, that's how kids are, and then sometimes that's how we can be, right? Uh, where we like to bring up, oh, here's this problem, here's this problem. And Jesus, in chapter number nine, he points out this problem that's taking place. He says, we have a harvest that's in front of us, and it's a great harvest, it's a bountiful harvest, plentiful. There's, there's enough to go around. But then he gives a problem, which we discussed last week. He said the laborers are few. There aren't enough people to go out into those harvest fields to bring all of this harvest in. But as we know Jesus, as we look at Jesus, one of the things Jesus doesn't do is say, hey, you go do these things and not participate. And so in chapter number 10, we find immediately after saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers, we find Jesus going and calling and commissioning laborers into that harvest field. And so chapters 9 and 10 connect beautifully as we look at verse number 1 of chapter 10. Watch what takes place. And he called to him, speaking of Jesus, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so here, what does Jesus do when he saw the need for laborers? What does Jesus do when he saw the need for laborers? 
he goes out and he calls them. And the first thing that we see here, the first uh, piece of information we have about them, is that this verse calls them his 12 disciples. Now, we may hear um, throughout the Bible or throughout conversation, this same group of people referred to a few different ways. The first way that we hear them called is we hear them called the disciples, and that's the word that is used here. This word for disciple, it simply means this. It means a follower, one who follows after. And in fact, this is the most common word used to describe followers of Jesus within the New Testament. The most single most common word used to describe followers of Jesus in the New Testament. It's not a word that's only specifically applied to these 12, although oftentimes we would call these the 12 disciples. But what it simply means is it's one who follows after. As we were back in Matthew chapter number four some weeks ago, we looked there as Jesus called out and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's the same word that is used in that context. Uh, that's the verb. This is the noun. It's the same thing that's being said. As he says, follow me, he's saying, these are 12 who have followed after. These are 12 who have come with me. And so he speaks to those 12 and what does he do? immediately he gives them authority to do the things that he had been doing. For two chapters now, in fact, nine series of miracles, we see Jesus casting out demons, healing sick, calming storms, doing these things over and over and over again. And now he comes to these disciples who have watched him do this, and he says, hey, I'm giving you the authority to do the same thing. But they're not just doing the same thing following after Jesus. You see, being a follower of Jesus doesn't just mean that we follow after him and that we're always safe in the comfort of uh, exactly where we are. It doesn't mean that we get to stay put. But in fact, there's another word used to describe this group in verse number two. So in two verses, he calls this group, Matthew does, two different things. And so he says the 12 disciples in verse one, but then watch verse two. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Now the word apostle Anyone, can anyone tell apostles a different word than disciple? <laughs> Sometimes we use these interchangeably referring to these men. But these are two very different words that mean very different things. Because an apostle is not one who follows after. An apostle is one who is sent. One who is sent out. Understand this with me. Followers of Jesus are sent out. We're going to press into that more in here in just a few minutes. But I want to plant that seed early on. Because we follow after Jesus, that involves, it requires being sent out. The two do not exist without each other. So two sides of the same coin, two words used to describe the same group of people here. But now I want to look at this list that he gives us. Because he says the names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, as we look at this, I want you to understand, this is not necessarily the calling of these apostles and these disciples, or um, what the New Testament often refers to these as consistently as the twelve. And so this is not the calling of the twelve as much as this is a list of those who had been called by Jesus already. And so now Matthew is listing these, and he lists, beginning with the first, Simon, who is called Peter. If you were with us back about a year ago, we went through a study of the book of 1 Peter. This is that same Peter here that is a follower of Jesus. And Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. So we have four that are named here, two sets of brothers. Does anyone happen to know what the occupation of all four of these men was before Jesus called them? They were fishermen. So they were very wealthy. Never got dirty. 
Never went home smelling like things that their wives didn't want them smelling like. That never happened, right? These are fishermen. These are ordinary guys. Verse 3, we continue with this list. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so who is in this list? Who are the people that we know about in this list, occupationally speaking? Well, we know those four who are all fishermen. Uh, We know of Matthew, who also had a big illustrious job and everyone loved him. He was a tax collector, right? (laughs) The celebrities of our culture. I know, no, he's a tax collector, which then was even worse than it is now, if you can believe that. But what we have is we have these men, and then we also have, this is, this is incredible here, uh, we have a, a, verse number four, Simon the Zealot. Uh, zealots were a political group of people who were sold on ridding Israel of the Roman occupation. So you have in this group Matthew, a tax collector, who works for the Romans, and Simon, a zealot, who wants to get rid of all the Romans. You wonder how those uh, journeys from one town to another had to be, right? You wonder what conversations came up at the dinner table between Matthew and Simon. We don't know a lot of the occupations of these men outside of those we just talked about. That's about half of them. But you know what we do observe very quickly as we look at these men? Who does Jesus pick to be the 12 that will initiate the laborers in this harvest, this plan that he has to reach the world. What kind of men are these 12 that we come and that we observe? Well, Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians, and he tells us that not many wise or privileged or equipped in a worldly sense are called. God doesn't go around calling the people that are the most brilliant or that are uh, have all of the talent and all of the ability and all of the charisma. Those aren't the ones that God says, you know what, I'm going to target them and I'm going to get those people to follow after me. But who are these men that he calls? They're ordinary. They're everyday people. They're people that are in many ways like you and I. You look at these men and they didn't have all of the degrees He didn't go and start with doctors of the law and those who had gone and studied and learned. All No, he took these men that were ready to follow after him. He used ordinary people. And I want you to understand this today. As we go into this next stage of Matthew's book, God does his best work through ordinary people in ordinary places. God does his best work through ordinary people in ordinary places. You and I may look at the Holy Land and Jerusalem and Galilee as being a destination. Can I tell you when this is taking place? You know where that was? Nowhere. Nazareth was where Jesus was born. You know what that place is? The sticks. God doesn't look for the places where all this magnificent things are happening and I'm going to commandeer. No, God looks and works in and through ordinary, everyday people. And you know what's so wonderful about that? Is who are we? We're ordinary, everyday people. You see, you don't have to be something uh, that the world looks to and look at all the fame and the glitz and the glamour and say, oh, wow, if only. Listen, God chooses to work through the ordinary. God chooses to work through people who uh, work on the line at factories. 
He chooses to work through stay-at-home moms. He chooses to work through grandparents who invest in their grandchildren and love and serve their neighbors and communities. He works through children. He works through the blue collar and the white collar alike. God's not a respecter of persons where he says, only I can only use those. No. God has seen fit to include us in the work that he's doing to reach the world. And so one of the best things that we can claim is that we're ordinary. And you know what? Honestly, that lets a lot of pressure off of us because we're not the ones that are called to produce the results of the work, are we? We go and we stay faithful to the work that God is doing. And who gives us the fruit for our labor? God does. And so we see God beginning this work, and he doesn't begin this work by going to the doctors of the law. He doesn't begin this work by going to the high priest and saying, hey, won't you just be a follower of mine and grabbing all the leaders of the Pharisees? We're going to find eventually he would call Paul, who was one who had studied and one who had a lot of education. Uh, But the thing about Paul is Paul refers to himself. He says, I'm like one that was kind of, I was one that was born out of due time. I'm a one who was kind of, I'm the messed up one of this group, is what he says. And he's the one who has the intellect and has the education and has the training. So when we look at what Jesus is looking for within his followers, he's looking for those who will what? What's the one quality that we know? They follow after him. That's the only quality that we know that these men had in common, was that they followed after Jesus. You want to be used by God? You want God to use you to transform your neighborhoods, your communities, your homes, your schools, your work? You want God to use you to accomplish those things? Follow him. That's where it begins. It doesn't mean that we have to be the ones, we have to be the, the, he doesn't call it low notice here. And it's not just because they didn't exist in this time. There are no rocket scientists in this group. (laughs) There are no neurosurgeons. There are no, now I'm not telling you if you're a rocket scientist or a neurosurgeon, God can't use you. All right. I'm glad you're here as well. All right. Don't feel attacked. But listen, God does his work in the ordinary. God does his work in the everyday. Because God doesn't need all the wisdom of the world to accomplish his goals and his tasks. God doesn't need all of the the permission of those who are in authority to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. And that's a beautiful thing for you and I who are ordinary. And so we see God beginning to work through these ordinary men and women. It actually reminds me of a, a story that you find in the Old Testament. A story about a man by the name of Naaman. And Naaman was a commander in one of the ancient armies of a large, important nation. And Naaman one day was diagnosed with leprosy. If you're familiar with leprosy, leprosy is a disease today known as Hansen's disease. Um, And leprosy begins to eat away at your body, literally speaking. Your body will begin to die, starting at the extremities, working its way inwards. Um, So eventually it will take your life if not treated. Today we treat through antibiotics, um, but antibiotics were not, they, they were not discovered yet as of this time. And so this was a death sentence for Naaman. And one day, a little Jewish girl who he had taken as a servant in his home told him about a man who was healing people in Israel. 
And so Naaman goes and he brings with him all the treasures that he can bring together. And he goes to the king of Israel and he says, heal me, king. Here are all the riches that I have. And the king says, hey, I can't do any of that. Okay, let's uh, don't start anything here because I don't know what you're talking about. But, you know, there's this guy named Elisha. He's a prophet of God and he might be able to help you. And so uh, Naaman goes to Elisha and Elisha, here's the funny thing. Elisha doesn't even come out to greet Naaman. Elisha, this prophet of God, sends one of his servants out to greet Naaman. And so this guy that works for him comes out to see the really important guy. And so he's like, hey, is your boss around here somewhere? Uh, And he says, no, 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 he doesn't need to come out. We're not going to bother him with this. Uh, But he told me to tell you to go to the Jordan River and to dip seven times. Well, Naaman, the big commander with all the money and the fame and the the authority, uh, what does he think about going and uh, bathing himself in a river seven times? He's like, listen. Um, excuse me, (laughs) I got rivers back home that are nicer than this. Listen, I got money. I'll just pay for this. I would rather not. You see, Naaman had everything that he needed in his mind to be healed, except the one thing that he actually did need to be healed. You know what he needed to be healed? You ready for a riddle today? (laughs) You know what he needed to be healed? Nothing. The one thing that Naaman wasn't prepared to give. You see, as... We come to God both for our salvation and even for our service to him. You know what we come to him with? Nothing. What do we have to offer the God who saved us by giving his only son, Jesus? You see, we look at the New Testament, the end of the book of Matthew, spoiler, if you're not familiar with, um, end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is crucified. He dies, he's buried, and then he rose again. He's the one who gave We don't have anything to give. We don't have anything to offer in return. We don't have anything that that we're able to say, God, look and accept me for this reason. We have nothing. But for Naaman's story, it was only when Naaman realized the nothingness that he had that he was finally healed. When he said, my money can't accomplish this for me, my status can't accomplish this for me, only by following after what I am told to do am I able to actually receive this healing. And so what does he do? He obeys. And so we see Naaman is finally healed when he realizes that the only thing he has is nothing. But isn't that what these disciples are? Isn't this who you and I are? And these are the people that God uses to work. So what do these 12 have to offer? Wealth? No. Education? No. Talent? Popularity? Everyone wants to hang out with the fishermen. (laughs) Has anyone ever said that before? I mean, if you're like a game fisherman, you're like, yeah, get in there. Um, I worked at a fish house for a short stint. Okay. Um, You don't want to go hang out there. (laughs) It's not the place you want to be. Then look at verse number five. As he lists these men, these 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them. And, And it's interesting, that word they're sent out. That's the same word that we see in verse 2 is apostle. And so these 12, Jesus apostled, if you will, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so as he's saying, he's saying, as we're going out, we're not going to the Gentiles yet. We're not going to the Samaritans yet. But go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. 
And now these are all things that Jesus had just done in the previous two chapters. Every single one of them he had already accomplished himself. He said, you received without paying, give without pay. So you didn't acquire this because of your ability or your talent. You didn't buy into this class. You didn't do anything to earn it. So give these gifts without receiving. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy and it stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so what does he do with these 12? Once they have been identified, once they have followed him around for a period of time, we don't know exactly how long they've been following him at this point. But here as we come to chapter number 10, what does he do? He takes those who had been following after him and he sends them out. Following Jesus means being sent. Following Jesus means being sent. You can't be a follower of Jesus without being sent out. Understand this. Jesus was sent, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He came and he accomplished something. He was sent out. And so as we follow after Jesus, being sent, we also have to understand means going outside of the place where we are comfortable. Being sent means we don't stay put in one place because this is where we like to be. We all like being comfortable, right? How many of you like being comfortable? Yes. <laughs> if you didn't raise your hand, um, I'm just going to call you a liar, and, you know, it's just how it is. We like being comfortable. But being comfortable is not a follower of Jesus. Because we follow after Jesus, what does he do? He sends. He sends. The greatness of any church, the greatness of any body of believers is not found in its seating capacity. It's found in its sending capacity. You see, as a church of Jesus Christ, we're not here just to gather for the sake of gathering. There's a certain ebb and flow that takes place within gospel multiplication, which means that there are days and there are seasons that we gather, that the harvest is plentiful and that they come together. And then there are days that the harvest becomes the laborers and they're sent out into other harvest fields. And so we don't gather for the sake of gathering, for the sake of hoarding it for ourselves. We gather so that fruit may be given to the account of Jesus Christ. We are sent into the harvest field as his laborers. And so just as Jesus has said, pray the Lord of the harvest, he demonstrates to us what it looks like for laborers to be sent out into the harvest. And he takes those 12 that he had gathered and that he had invested in, he says, it's your turn to go out. You're going to go out two by two, and you're going to go to these towns. When you come to these towns, there'll be those who will readily accept you. He says, don't take anything. You don't need to take two jackets. You don't need to take two sandals. You don't need to take two staffs. Just take what you need. Don't worry about gathering gold and gathering resources to be able to, because God is going to provide for you even as you go, and he sends them out. And you know what he does? Even in saying that, he addresses one of our most common fears to being sent. We always worry about the provision. We always worry about the provision, don't we? 
Now, it may not be a monetary provision. That's probably the first thing we think of when we think of that word. But we think if I'm being sent to my neighbor, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? How do I initiate this conversation? How do I begin to demonstrate the love of God to this person? They're going to think I'm crazy. Can I say this? They probably will. Because you probably are. The fact is, is that as we go out, we go out as one that's sent. We go out as one who is an apostle. But the fact is, is as we go, he provides. He provides. And so as these men went out, he said, don't even bother with the preparation here. I'm telling you right now that just take the coat on your back, take the shoes on your feet, They'll take care of your food. I will make sure you are cared for. Go and do the thing that I've sent you to do. But we look at that, and that makes us all a little uneasy, doesn't it? That makes us all a little bit unsettled, doesn't it? Going and trusting in a provision that we're not able to see or touch or feel tangibly? What's wrong with you? But that's where we are. But at the same time, when we look at what faith is, when we look at uh, what takes place and what's happening here, we have to understand, we have to understand that if we are not living a life that leaves us a little bit uncomfortable, if we're not doing things that we don't think we can accomplish on our own, we probably aren't living by faith. What's the thing in your life that you look at and you say, I can't do this by myself? If there's not a thing, can I push back on you a little bit? Hey, that's what faith is. Faith is saying, I don't know how it's going to be taken care of, but I'm going to do it anyways. Faith is saying, I'm going to step into a situation that is unknown, but I'm going to step into it anyways. If you're staying within your comfort zone and you're never going out past it, it's not a life of faith. Faith faith is absent from that. The Bible teaches us that the things that aren't of faith, that's sin. We're called to follow. And following means we might not always know where we're going. But even if we don't know where we're going, Jesus does. Jesus does. And so we see here that he sends these disciples out. We see that following, it means being sent. And as they go out, what do they do? What do they do? Verse 7, they proclaim They preach, they teach. Now, this isn't just talking exclusively of jumping out on a street corner and yelling. That's not what he's talking about. But going and finding those who are ready to hear the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's still the message that we preach today. We go out and we say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God sent his son Jesus into the world. He was born, buried, died, buried, rose again for you and for me. And so we still see those things. That's still the same message that we go out with proclaiming and healing, providing, doing good within these neighborhoods, not fearing rejection. Because what does he say? He says, there'll be those that will welcome you in. Their house will be worthy is the word that's used. They'll accept this message of the kingdom. They will provide for you. They will take care of you. God will use them in your lives. But then he also says, there's going to be those who won't receive you. He says to be those, they're not, they're not worthy. They won't listen to your words. And what does he do? He says, shake off the dust from your feet. He says, hey, we don't spend time worrying about why this individual rejected the message that we have because you know why? There's someone next door 
who's ready to hear the message. I have a friend of mine who he owned a car dealership for a number of years. And I was talking to him, very successful salesman, businessman, and I was talking to him, and he, um, he, he said, uh, when it came to selling these cars, he said, I knew not everyone would want one of the cars on my lot, but I spent time finding the ones who did. You see, there'll be those who are going to reject the message of Jesus Christ. It's been that way since Jesus was himself walking this earth. There's plenty of opposition that he faced. But we're called to go and take the gospel to those who are ready to receive that word. Sure, we labor with and we spend time with and we cultivate the soil and water with those who have not yet received Christ. But but what do we do? We continue to take the gospel out. We don't say, because someone doesn't want the gospel, I'm not going to take it to anybody. But we continue to go out into this world, not fearing rejection, because understand this, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting him. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting him. And so we don't fear this rejection. And we don't go back to our old lives. It would have been easy for these 12 to go out and to see this and see some of the difficulty and turn around and say, you know what? Maybe following Jesus is not for me. But we don't turn around and do this because understand, you cannot encounter Jesus and leave unchanged. You cannot encounter Jesus and leave unchanged. You don't surrender your life to a man who was dead and rose again and say, you know what? That has no effect on me. When you encounter Jesus, that changes everything. Because there's, there's now there's, there's hope in the grave. There's hope in death. There's a life that I can be given that is eternal and abundant. Excuse me. That changes everything. It transforms us. And so as we look at everything that's going on here, here's how I want to I summarize our time together. If Jesus is working in the world, following him means doing the same. If Jesus is going out and working in the world, following him means doing the same. It means being sent out. It means not being content and complacent with sitting here and and being, hey, on Sunday morning, I did my Sunday morning thing. No, we're sent out into a world that's in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that there are those, every week we want to be careful to not assume that just because you're in church, you're a Christian. And so today, there may be those in here who you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We're glad that you are here. We praise God that you are here that you're hearing the truth of the gospel, and we pray and anticipate the day where you will give your life to him. We look forward to it. At the same time, believers in Jesus Christ, what are we doing with this gospel? We say we're a follower of Jesus, but then he's going and he's moving and we're staying put. Is that what followers do? Have you ever played a game of follow the leader? Anyone ever play that as a kid? We play the game follow the leader. The leader does one thing, and then the people following, does the, they do the same thing, and you're supposed to follow this leader as they walk around whatever space you're in. Could you imagine saying, I'm following the leader while they're marching across the room, and you're just sitting there where you began the whole thing? We say, no, you're not. You're not following after anyone. You're doing what you want to do. Understand this. When we follow after Jesus, Jesus sends out those who follow after him. Because Jesus goes and Jesus does. And, and Jesus, he doesn't, we don't see in the New Testament, we don't see him just sitting still. Sure, he came aside and he rested. There were those seasons of it. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying this. 
Jesus isn't complacent when he looks at the multitude. He doesn't say, ah, you know what, that multitude really, they look kind of like sheep without a shepherd, but it's okay. No, he says, pray the Lord of the harvest. Then he goes and he calls laborers and sends them into the harvest. And the same thing that was true for these apostles in the first century is true for you and for me. If we're a follower of Jesus, we're sent into the harvest field. Now, your harvest field probably looks a little different than my harvest field. Probably looks different than the harvest field of the person beside you. God has placed you where you are for a reason and for a season. And he has not placed anyone else there. You see, no one else in this room has the same neighbors that you have. Has the same family that you have. Has the same people that they work with and they spend time with and that they... No, no one else has those those same connections that you have. You've been sent there. Go there. Be there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as he calls us to follow, following Jesus means being sent, not staying put. So where is God calling you to increase your faith today? Where is God calling you to go and to be that light in your community today? Where is he moving in your heart to go and to demonstrate and to do the work of the ministry? To show the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ.